Okay, we're going to get started. We have a full-on evening. So welcome everyone and thank you for coming to the Dr. Roger Bland Lecture Series on Improving Children's Mental Health, presented by CASA, Child Adolescent Family Mental Health, along with our partners, the Institute of Health Economics, the University of Alberta, Department of Psychiatry, the Edmonton Public School Board, and the Alberta Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. My name is Dr. Denise Milne, and I'm CEO of CASA and the CASA Foundation. We are so very excited that you are all, you are all here tonight. Tonight will be about a conversation on infant and preschool mental health, a very important conversation. As you know from the previous lecture series sessions, it's our goal with the Dr. Roger Bland lecture series to provide information that is helpful and meaningful to you. We want to inspire dialogue, hope and wisdom through, throughout the, with the expertise of our fantastic keynote speakers and panel members, and to engage in conversation and learning throughout the night and going forward. If you would like to support CASA, and our work with infants, children, youth, and families, you can text CASA to 393939 for information on how to donate. We are so appreciative of all donations that come from the lecture series. I would now like to introduce to you our moderator, Leslie McDonald, who you will recognize from our previous season of lectures. Leslie is well known in the community through her work with Global TV, Women of Vision, uh, her active involvement in community initiatives and her communications company. It has been a true pleasure to work with Leslie on the lecture series and we're looking forward to working with her on installations to come. I would also like to introduce and thank our keynote speaker for the evening, Dr. Jean Clinton, and thank you to all the wonderful panelists this evening as well. I will now hand over the mic to Leslie. <laughs> thank you, Denise, I love this. I've got a mic on my head, kind of nice. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we're on Treaty 6 territory, a traditional meeting ground, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Dakota Sioux. And also a few housekeeping notes. For those of you who'd like to use the washroom, it's a little bit complicated. Um, you just go downstairs and then you sort of wind your way around to the left and you'll find it partway down that, that archway uh, walkway. Um, and also ask that you keep your phones on silent. If you could just double check and make sure so that if we're in the middle of something really big, no one's phone ends up going off. You know what that's like. Uh, the evening uh, format is going to be, we're going to hear from our wonderful speaker, uh, Dr. Jean Clinton, who's come here all the way from Ontario. Um, and she's going to be speaking this weekend, actually, at another event, and I'll tell you a bit more about that at the end of the program. Uh, and then we're going to introduce our panel members, we're going to have a discussion, and then we're going to invite you to join in the conversation, because we really like you to participate with your questions. So our keynote this evening, as I mentioned, uh, our topic is infant and preschool mental health, and it's a pretty common theme that I found actually speaking with all of our panelists, that even though all of the research is out there showing that how important this is, it's something that where the message isn't getting through. So that's why tonight's so important. Our keynote is our renowned nationally and internationally as an advocate for children's issues. Dr. Jean Clinton is a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University, as well as senior scientist at McMaster's Infant Child Health Lab 
She's also an associate in the Department of Child Psychiatry at both the University of Toronto and Sick Children's Hospital. Dr. Clinton has been a consultant to children and youth mental health programs, child welfare, and primary care for more than 30 years, and until recently was actually an educational advisor to both the Premier of Ontario and the Minister of Education. Dr. Clinton is also the faculty head for the Ontario Primary Care Education Strategy and a founding board member and fellow on the Dr. Fraser Mustard's Council for Early Childhood Development, among many others. The author of several papers and book chapters on various aspects of early child development, Dr. Clinton champions the development of a national comprehensive child well-being strategy. And on a personal note, she is a mother of five wonderful, she says, adult children and four grandchildren, including a set of twins and, very recently, a newborn grandchild, just born last month. So please, we're so delighted. Join me in welcoming Dr. Jean Clinton. Great. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> All right. Well, what a phenomenal theater this is. Is that it's very comfy, and I can't see your faces, but I'll be watching and listening for snoring. They're so comfy. So I'm pleased, very pleased, to be speaking with such a, a great group on an, uh, an area that is close to my heart, and that is talking about infant and early childhood mental health. And I've titled this The Power of Relationships because I'm a child psychiatrist, you heard that. So first of all, I have to make your bias confirm that you love Scottish child psychiatrists from Ontario, okay? Everybody, you love Scottish, yeah, there we go, oh, now I can go on. So I spend so much of my time doing less time uh, doing clinical work and more time spending as much information sharing and knowledge translation as I can possibly do by going out to uh, people, actually anybody who will listen to me, talk about the brain and how the brain is affected by the experiences around it, and that relationships are the absolute heart of the matter. And so when I'm talking about the power of relationships and we're thinking about infant and early childhood mental health, we really need to be thinking about not only that beauteous relationship between the infant and their parents, their caregivers, the people who are crazy about them. But we also need to be thinking, particularly in these days, of the relationship that we build with each other in the infant mental health field, between the, uh, the community and the families, between policymakers and researchers. So when I'm talking about the power of relationships, I really would like for you to be able to think of it as a network connecting all of those who touch children. Why? Because I have a dream, it's a delusion to some, but that every single child will have at least one adult whose eyes light up when they enter the room. And the other dream that I have is that our children who have more struggles in their life, that they 
will have their eyes light up because there is a special person in this room and in every room they encounter who sees them for the great potential that they have and they are. So I somehow have slipped in already a picture of my five wondrous grandchildren. Aren't they gorgeous? And you know, I have to tell you, because I'm a medical doctor, if I have any conflicts of interest, if I'm being sponsored by any company that's paying me all kinds of millions of dollars, and the answer is no. First of all, I'm an infant and early childhood mental health. There ain't no money out there, baby. But we are working together. We're working together to be able to say what is that our elders have told us for so, so many, many years. And I show this slide no matter who I'm speaking with, because I've been so touched by the teachings of our First Nations. And the teachings of our First Nations tell us that children are the sacred ones. They are the heart of the nation. I heard this from a Mohawk elder called Tom Porter. And he, he talks, he's got a wonderful book called What Grandma Said, or What Grandma Told Me. And what Grandma told him was that we need as a community to be thinking of our sacred responsibility of raising children. Can you imagine if that was our North Star belief? That in everything that we did, and every policy that we made, we were thinking about what is the influence of this decision going to be for the next seven generations to come? Can we actually stop and think about the possibilities of thinking about our very youngest citizens in all of the decisions that we make? You know, one of the things that, um, that Tom was that when a mum is pregnant, the partner needs to be like a pillow that absorbs that, the, the high emotionality, the stress of being pregnant, the emotional roller coaster. And I was blown away by it because what I had just read was a paper on the impact of high stress in pregnancy. And what we now know is different than what I was trained with in terms of knowledge, and that is that you absolutely have an impact on that developing baby if you live in a high toxic stress situation. The papers were just coming out showing that babies born when the mum has experienced high stress have more attention deficit, have more smaller brains, smaller size. So the teachings of the elders. How can we make sure that we are keeping them in mind? And you know, the other thing that Tom Porter taught me is they don't think about children with special needs. They think about children with special rights. And you know, when you change your language, just that little bit about thinking about, oh, a child with special needs means that we have to do something to make them something. Whereas if we think about them as having special rights, then we start to stop and think about, well, what is the beauteous story that they have been sent to tell me? That's the teaching of the elders. Can you imagine if we really thought 
that all children are born learning. They are ready to learn right from the start. They are capable and competent right from the very beginning. But you know, it doesn't start off well for all babies. And what we're now learning in terms of infant and early mental health is that half of all mental health problems at age 26 have been diagnosed already in childhood and adolescence. So we see a moderate amount of money being spent on older children as we absolutely should. We absolutely should. When the Mental Health Commission was looking at how Canada spends its dollars, they realized that mental health was the orphan of the health system, but that mental health of children was the orphan's orphan. Well, we got on this bandwagon and said, well, wait a second, what about our preschoolers and our infants? They're the orphan's orphan's orphan. And if you say to be listening to you just like this microphone is turning me off here. So we think about the early years and we think what can go wrong? What can go wrong in the early years? And so a whole lot of the work that many of us in the field have to do is convincing people, pay attention. Pay attention. In fact, in Ontario, I was invited in uh, 2014 to bring together a group of authors to look at what is the evidence that we have that children under six years of age have problems in their social development. And so we did a paper called Supporting Ontario's Youngest Minds, Investing in the Mental Health of Children Under Six. It's available at the, the website um, for the Ex Centre of Excellence, available in English and French. And what did we discover? Well, essentially, what we discovered is that it's hard to measure because a lot of the, a lot of the studies that look at prevalence uh, of mental health problems don't start until children are at least four. So we know from four to 17 that the prevalence is high. You know, the 20% of children is the common number. So we really had to go and do some digging to see about, well, what about under four? And what we found from international studies and done in the um, uh, uh, overseas was that the the number of kids under six with significant challenges in their social and emotional development is about the same. It's about 18%, as high as 26% in some studies. And you know, I talk to pediatricians and they say, infant mental health, what is that? So we have a very, very big challenge in convincing many people that yes, mental health problems can start early, they're significant, and they also can last a long time. They don't go away. We also were involved with the Center of Excellence looking to see about, well, let's look at our three to six-year-olds. So I don't know what it's like for you here in Alberta, but we now have full day of learning for four-year-olds and five-year-olds. And so this is the first time that all of our, just about all of our children now are in full day school. 
Ideally, it is a play-based, fun place to be, so we can have conversation about that, but ideally, it's an early childhood educator and a teacher, play-based, bringing a sense of belonging, a sense of well-being. It's a very, very deep, rich, joyous curriculum that it's supposed to be. But what was happening is that many kids were showing up for the very first time with major challenges in behavior with major self-regulation difficulties. And so we at McMaster, where the uh, uh, early development instrument was developed, showed that children, say in Hamilton, Ontario, where I'm from, 33% children in Hamilton were in school, arriving at school, without the skills that they needed to do well in that situation. And so many of them were, in fact, the social and emotional skills. Now, I go on a rampage when I hear people talk about, um, oh, you know, kids nowadays, they can read and write, but they can't get along. I had a wonderful reporter call me up once, and she said, Jean, I'm reading these reports from California, where these four-year-olds, they can, they can talk, they can read, they can write, but they can't play together. And I said, oh man, oh man, Agnes, that is the tyranny of cognitive seduction. Isn't that a great term? I made it up right on the spot, <laughs> right on the spot. The tyranny of cognitive seduction. We have in our world of education, early education as well, for too many years, privileged certain ways of knowing. And they are literacy and numeracy, which I absolutely love, literacy and numeracy. But the problem is that people don't have the right balance. Children develop their various areas of social, emotional, physical, language, cognitive, they learn them all together. And you can't privilege one ahead of the others. The children that we know, and I'll show you the evidence for this, who do well later on are the ones who have got terrific social and emotional skills. They learn how to get along. So we've got papers. And we say, okay, so let's do something about it. What's the system like? And this is what it's like in Ontario. Look familiar. Look at it. We've got so many hands that touch the lives of children under six. We've got public health, we've got primary care, we've got education, children's services, social services, all kinds of people in their silos. And in their silos, they can do some communication and some collaboration. But then what happens if you've got a mum or a dad or a partner with an adult mental health issue? Well, sorry, our funding, our billing only goes for either it's a child or it's an adult. We run into all of this chaos. So we said in our paper, all right, we need to scan and see is looking at what is the best model? How do, we go how do we go about? What's our approach when we have as much as one in five children 
with a significant behavioral, social or emotional uh, language problem? How do we go about it when it's as many as that? We're never going to have enough people to treat each child one at a time. We have to be thinking about promoting the healthy development of all children. We need to have a very big public health approach to this, where we say, let's make sure that we are doing some of the stuff that we're going to hear about at the panel, that we're going to have coalitions whose job is to, and their, their passion is to have parents know about the importance of their relationships in their baby's brain development. So healthy promotion for all children then it's really important to recognize that there are some children who, because of the circumstances of their life or of their birth, are more at risk than others. So we need to have some early identification practices that are effective, that we can screen children for the, who we believe are going to have challenges, and then we need to be able to have high-quality, evidence-based treatment programs for the children and families, because there's no such thing as just a baby. There's always a baby and an adult in their life. So how big is the problem? Is this just you know a, a bunch of us who love babies and preschoolers getting together and saying, oh, well, what about our little ones? Well, you know, the reality is that there are studies that are showing us that preschoolers in the uh, pre-kindergarten kids are being expelled at a rate more than three times that of their older peers in K to 12 combined. In the US, little ones in pre-K are being suspended. They're expulsed from school. Not only that, but people have also looked at how about if you've got some hard stuff that you've already been dealing with before you arrive at school. There's a very big study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. It was an adult, an adult health study that looked at uh, 117 adults looked at their health outcomes and asked them 10 questions. Asked them before 18 years of age, did they experience neglect, abuse, family dysfunction? And what they have found, these ACEs, is the more the number of adverse childhood experiences accumulate up. And the more you have, the more likely you are to be sick, the more likely you are to have trouble with employment, the more likely you are to have emotional problems. And so people think about, oh, well, we'd better do something to prevent these adverse childhood experiences. Where should we start? Well, this study is showing that even as early as early childhood, kids with adverse childhood experiences already were falling behind in kindergarten. What this one talk, talked about was, are the years in kindergarten any way predictive of what happens later? And in this study, they looked at social and emotional development of kids in kindergarten and looked at them later and found it's social and emotional learning 
that we really need to be focusing on, not just cognition or language. So I mentioned the early development instrument, and overall in Canada, 25% of kids were identified as vulnerable. Now the EDI, as it's called, is a quick and dirty checklist that kindergarten teachers fill out when they've known the children for a number of months in the spring, and they ask about physical development, social development, emotional development, language, communication. And it's not a diagnostic test at all, because what they do is they aggregate all of the numbers up and look at the populations. So what this is telling us, Canada, is we are failing up to 32% of our children across the country. And you'll hear what the percentage is of children who don't have the skills that they need to do well in life. Now, we have been saying for a long time in Ontario, and actually as I travel across the country, there's something happening with our preschoolers. Our kindergarten teachers are saying more of them are hyperactive, they're bored, they don't seem to be able to play anymore. And so we were very, very alarmed when there was a, a, a study done called the Ontario Child Health Survey that looked at thousands of kids and compared the results from 1984 to 2014. And what do you see here? Oh my goodness, or can we get to this in the conversation? What we see here is that there has been a very significant increase in four to 11-year-olds with hyperactivity. This is an example of one of those studies that didn't go uh, under four. But look how high that has gone. I'll be speaking later on the weekend about anxiety in school age and, and adolescence. And even though the, those numbers between 83 and 2014 in terms of diagnosed anxiety has not gone up, the perception of I've got overwhelming anxiety has gone up. So there's something happening. There's something happening that's starting early that we need to be paying attention to, that the science tells us we need to be working together to do something about. And what is it, what is the thing that we need to be doing something about? Well, it's about supporting our youngest families to raise their children in ways that they get the support that they need when the little ones are showing that their development is not going along and a track that is making them successful or happy in their life. So that means let's talk about uh, infant mental health. And so we took from a definition from zero to three, the organization in the US, their definition of infant mental health because it's the best that there is. And what it is, and think about this, think about this in the, the, the little three-year-olds, the little two-year-olds in your life. I've got my gorgeous um, three-year-old Liam, um, uh, my, the, the twins are 22 months, and little Ella, who's three weeks. So it's terrible for them, because they've got this super geek of a grandmother. 
Her, their nana is always watching and figuring out, you know, I try and pull out my camera, but make sure they don't get any screen time because that's a, that's a no-no, right? No-no. But I want to capture all these things as they're developing. Their brains, I actually see their brain development right in front of my eyes. But what is the task of babies and toddlers and preschoolers under six? Well, it really is all about learning how to build relationships and connection. To learn how to, we're, our babies are born so prematurely in terms of brain development that some people talk about the first year of life should be like an external womb. We need to be creating the environments of safety and protection for our infants as if it were an external womb. Imagine that thought. And then you hear the teaching of our first name the teaching of the Tikkanagan or the cradle board and you go, aha, wisdom of the elders, how we need to be protecting our youngest families and supporting them. But so that baby needs to form these close and secure adult and then peer relationships. Well, do you know what? That's all about attachment. That's all about learning that the world is a safe and a secure place to be. And I'll talk a little bit later about one of the programs that you have here in Alberta called Circle of Security that does that so beautifully, that lets that child, makes and helps those parents and that child have a close connection that says the world is safe, I am secure, so that they feel safe enough to be able to go out into the world and explore. But do you know, if you've got a little one who has a significant language development issue and they're not understanding the world around them, they're reading emotion, but they're not understanding fully within themselves what that emotion is or they don't have the language for it, then they may develop anxiety and not want to do that reaching out into the world. So if you don't have astute and acute observers in mama and papa and partner picking up that little one's anxiety, then you may not be able to come to an intervention as is offered here at CASA. So we need little ones to be able to develop attachment relationships that are predictable, that are secure, so they can go out then and explore their world. But they also have to learn how to experience, manage, and express a full range of emotion. And I say a full range, having spent all of Sunday with my four grandchildren. The full range all the way from, it's unbelievable. I have lots of toys and books and everything in the living room now. My living room looks like a childcare, a wonderful place. But what do the twins, Tommy and Jamie, decide that they want to have at the same time? Is that my little measuring tape for my knitting. That you push, the, you know, the ones that you push the button and it goes it gets sucked in, right? So they loved it. First of all, we played a game, Silly Nana, went pulling it out and went, and it goes. So they both wanted it. 
So what are you supposed to do? Well, of course I'm wondering, where's the other one so that there's two of them? But then I suggested, well, why don't we try a timer? Um, hello, Jean, they are not two yet. A little developmentally above their level, but not so. My daughter said, okay, we'll put an alarm on and we'll call it the big noise. So when the big noise goes, let's do the big noise, Jamie was saying. When the big noise goes, it's time to give it to your brother. Isn't that a wonderful plan? Scientifically proven? Not. But you know, the marvelous thing is, we introduced it a couple of weeks ago, and when I was down at their house just the other day, they were doing it. So, geek Nana, geek Nana is going, oh my Lord, what is happening? So I've got this picture in my brain about how you learn to experience, manage, and express your emotion. And it says that we've got deep in our brain an emotional brain, a limbic brain, a reptilian old, old brain, and then a limbic brain on top of that. And that children learn to manage that limbic brain, that emotional brain, by experience, by loving, nurturing, by co-regulation. I'll be talking more about this on the weekend. And it's with time that the thinking part of the brain, Dan Siegel uses the hand model to describe this, the thinking part of the brain is the last place to develop, is under construction until 28 years of age, but little toddlers are learning how to experience their emotion, their limbic brain. They are learning to use their words to connect with other people and other experiences so that they bring that limbic brain under self-regulation with their, th with their thinking brain. Most of the time though, as they're 18 months to two, it's flipping their lids that you get rather than the connecting of the brains. But that's what they're learning to do. And when we see children, who have regulation difficulties in the early years. It is behaviors that we're seeing with them being able to manage and uh, express their emotion. They need to be able to do this so that they can go and explore and learn. And it all happens in the context of family, community, and culture. So children's mental health is healthy social and emotional development. So what do you need? You need a developing brain in good working order that has the environmental stimulation. And the most important environmental stimulation is not flashcards or baby Einstein or baby Brittany or baby Tupac or baby who knows who's next. It is the back and forth, the turn. It's face-to-face -face time that babies need the most of for their developing brain. We know that we need to be paying very close attach attention to attachment. We know that we have huge impact of trauma on the developing brain that influences how all of those pathways connect. But we also, and this is the good news story, we also know 
that you can come from a family where they had tons of adverse childhood experiences, but if you have positive emotional connection, that, that adult who's crazy about you, whose eyes light up, you are protecting them. No matter what their biology, you're protecting them. So we care a lot about the brain. You in Alberta, with um, all the work that the Norlean Foundation and others have been doing, are leading the field in terms of educating people about why do we care about the, the brain. Well, the big science story these days is that the brain is not just about your genes, but it is about the interaction between the experiences, how they turn on or silence the genes. We now know that intelligence is not a fixed trait. You are not a product of your parents. You are a product of all of the environmental influences that have come to be the expression of your everyday drip, drip, drip activities. So you hear my Scottish accent as an example. So I have a Scottish accent, now here's a connection here. I have the Scottish accent because I was 11 when I left Scotland. So my neurons, when I was born, I had these billions or trillions, a whole ton, I can never remember the exact number, of neurons, that's a brain cell. Now they could have developed to speak French, to speak Punjabi, to speak English, though I don't think I would probably ever have spoken English coming from Scotland. But the Scottish accent was what I cared up for. I cannot speak without the Scottish accent. My ability to speak without it got trimmed. So the brain is built by experience, and that experience is predominantly serve and return. So watch this little video clip here, just so you get a good sense of serve and return. This is my little Liam. He's now three, but this was him at two weeks of age. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Destined for brilliance. <laughs> so, you know, the funny thing is here, so just so you know, my son does not have some kind of problem that he sticks his tongue out at people when he meets them. I told him to go home. I had just read a paper about infants imitating this early, and then didn't he go home and do it? Liam. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, why would a baby imitate like this? And this is the work of uh, Andrew Meltzoff and um, uh, University of Washington. And so what we know is that the brain gets built. The brain gets built by serve and return. So when we know that there are times when that is not being built, whether through maternal or uh, paternal depression, whether due to severe, severe life situations such as poverty or addiction. We know that what is happening is that children and being may not have 
sense of belonging, that feeling felt. So when we think about then impact, we have to think about toxic stress. So when I think, and the science tells us about toxic stress, what we know from the Harvard Center on the Developing Child is that we all have stress. Stress is good. If we didn't have stress, we wouldn't be performing at our, 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 at our best. You know, the fact that this frickin' mic is, keeps cutting in and out is stressing me no end. But it is tolerable. It's positive stress because I know my material. I just can't turn to any of you guys over here, I'm sorry to say. But so that's a positive stress. It's a positive and it's a tolerable stress. My heart rate is going up but then it goes down and works. But I know my material. I know that you people who have come here to hear about infant and early years mental health are my peeps, so I am less stressed. But the stress we really worry about is toxic stress. And I worry about our kids. I consult to our child welfare system, and I really worry about our kids in child welfare, as an example. You know what? I don't just worry about them. I also worry about our little ones who are childcare or school, where the academic expectations are developmentally inappropriate, where they're being pressured. A, a mum told me the story. A, her little girl who didn't want to go back to school after March break. And the problem was she knew that she was not, thanks very much, Frank, she knew that she was not in the top reading group. Here she is, she's four years of age, and she knows she's not in the top reading group. The stress that that created for her was such that her mum could not buffer it well enough. So I really worry about the schoolification that we sometimes see happening. What we need to see happening is what my colleague Jane Bertrand and the Lawson Foundation talk about is playification. We need playification in our pre-K and our kindergarten programs. Why? Why is this toxic stress or high, high levels of stress so bad for us? Well, what we know is that when your body perceives a stressor, it turns on a whole system in our brain to release adrenaline, to get ready to run from that threat, to release adrenaline and to release cortisol. And, but we also, we want to know when the threat has lifted, when it's gone away. So we've got a part of our brain called the hippocampus and it's new learning and memory. What we now know is that if your stress system is turned on too, too much, and your hippocampus isn't saying, there, there, it's okay, turn off, you can't learn. It's as if you're walking home and you see a bear. Your heart rate goes up, you sweat, your uh, pupils become larger, your stomach gets sore because you're not getting as much blood flow to your, to your stomach, and you're anxious. The problem we see with kids is when that stressor is there all the time. Well, look at this list. 
irritability, poor memory, difficulty focusing, critical thinking difficulty, increased anxiety and fear. So what we're seeing from the impact of high levels of stress that's not buffered by positive relationship looks like attention deficit. And then you start thinking about, oh, wow, what about all these kids who are being labeled hyperactive? Is it possible that it's stress behavior and not misbehavior or not attention deficit? Why? Because we know there's massive impacts of toxic stress. We need to be examining the stress in children's lives. It affects physically, developmentally, it affects regulation in terms of sleep and appetite. You can see aggressive, impulsive behaviors. And so, you know, I have a lot of trouble when there are assessments that just look at checklists and don't stop and sit and be with the family as happens with your services here. You sit with the family and understand what is their dilemma. What are the challenges that they have? You understand what is going on with that child and in those interactions. Because science is clearly, clearly telling us that this toxic stress is going to have an effect. So we need to intervene as early as possible. We need to be building up the protective factors giving parents the supports and the access to resources, helping them build social connections, getting supports in times of need. All of these things make so much sense. But remember the chaos picture? We need as communities to be coming together to saying, what can we do about it? Well, one of the things that the Canadian Pediatric Society has been doing is just recently uh, released a paper called Relationships Matter, having pediatricians and primary care doctors paying attention to relational health, not just how tall, how much language, really important, but also what's the social and emotional development. So the good news is, the very good news is that we have knowledge about what can help kids, infants, toddlers, and their families. There is a whole uh, organization called the Center in Social and Emotional Foundation for Early Learning, who has a pyramid model. It's called the pyramid model, a little bit different than what you have here in Alberta that I want to be coming and learning more about, which is the pyramid model, the coaching model, that is actually saying, let's go to where the kids are in childcare, and your grit is going into childcare and helping coach so that social and emotional development and learning is happening. There's another highly recommended, uh, uh, highly valued program called Beyond Behaviour Management that's being used in Ontario kindergarten programs through consultation that's looking at so many of the things, attachment, the jobs of infant and toddlers, thinking the behaviour challenges are stress behaviours, not misbehaviours.
is because the children have not yet developed the learning skill or the, the taxation that the tax on them of what they're being asked to do is too much. I have a very dear colleague here in Alberta, Caroline Hapshin uh, and Brandine, who, uh, uh, Dr. Brandine, who are looking at a fabulous model called the Neuro-Relational Framework that is also being used at, uh, used at CASA that says, let's look to see what are the stressors that are creating toxic strife in the child's life. What are the things that we can do to engage that child? You know, there's lots of programs, I'll show you uh, the, at the end here. There are lots of programs that talk about cognitive therapy. So trauma-focused CBT as an example. But when we're talking about infants and toddlers and preschoolers, that's way too high, that's up here thinking. What I love about the neuro-relational framework is it brings it right down to the senses. It brings it right down and helps parents become educated about the neural pathways and helps them. So, neuro-relational framework, a very, very promising practice. Circle of security, those of us who get trained in circle of security love circle of security. Look at this picture here, how it demonstrates that beauteous, secure base. I need you to support my exploration, but man, oh man, do I ever need you to welcome me back when I'm needing protection and comfort. Circle of Security is a wonderful program uh, with evidence to show that it can help many families when there's an attachment issue. From Toronto comes Watch, Wait and Wonder, which is an infant-led approach for working with infants and their families. Uh, and also there is child-parent psychotherapy. So there are some other trauma-based treatments that we can talk about, but what I want to finish with is this. What we hope for in parent-child relationships, this is my favorite place to be, inside your hug. And so what we're learning, what we're learning is that we need to pay attention to our littlest ones. We need to be creating for them the experiences and for their parents, the experiences where they can be recognized as having rights, on their own, having personhood. And that comes with the knowledge that we need, the resources to support them, however they are, whoever they are, whatever they look like. We need to be asking ourselves, what is my view of the child? Do I see the child as an empty vessel that I need to fill up with my wonderful knowledge? Or do I see the child as full of potential, full of growth, full of opportunity? You know, the Cree have a story. I learned this when I was on Vancouver Island. And the grandfather tells a story to the children about the two wolves that battle in us. One of the wolves is evil, is angry, is jealous. And it's battling inside of our head with the wolf that's good, that is joyous, that's kind, that's love. One of the little ones up front is listening so intently to the grandfather. And he says, tell me, which one wins? And he says, it depends which one you feed. We 
need to be pulling ourselves, our coalitions, our energy, our passions together for our youngest children. They need the kind of support where their eyes can light up knowing that the adults in their life are there and feeding them what they need both, most. So I'm going to stop there and say thank you very, very much. I'm assuming you're all awake. Yeah. And thank you. Whoa. Thank you. I need a hug. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. So We're going to move this so we can begin the panel discussion, I think. Thank you. Um, so if you would like to take a seat here. Okay. okay. Wow, that was, um, boy, I, uh, I was sitting in the audience thinking, would I ever love to have you as my kid's grandmother? <laughs> your, your children are so, so fortunate to have, have you. And, um, and you've given us an awful lot to think about and actually to sort of carry forth in the conversation as well. Um, one of the wonderful things about these discussions is we get to hear this topic from a number of different points of view uh, and from different experiences. Um, uh, and one of the things that we really value is looking at, uh, at lived experience, and we always bring that to our panels. And so we're really pleased that Kristen Loosemore is the first to join us on the panel. Kristen. She is a psychology graduate from McMaster University, and she's currently a stay-at-home mom, and she's running a small business from her home. She has two children. Bo is one, and Elsie is four. And she's a parent with CASA's pre-kindergarten program. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. It's a lot to come. <laughs> so um, your experience, your lived experience, began when your daughter was about two. Can you tell us a bit about happened. Absolutely, yes. Um, I'll start by apologizing. I lost my voice last night, so I'll do my best to not be too squeaky. Um, yeah, our journey started when she was two, approximately mm -hmm. two. We first started to notice that her speech wasn't developing as it should have been. And um, we had talked to our family doctor, and that was kind of our first step where we didn't know what to do. And he told us that um, it's normal in that a lot of children don't start speaking until they're even three. He told us the story of Einstein, how he didn't say one word until he was three, so we don't need to worry. Um, I did not like that answer, and so I searched out uh, private speech therapy, and we started that with her, and uh, what resulted from that was um, our private speech therapist had told us that she likely had childhood apraxia of speech, which is a motor speech disorder. Mm -hmm. um, so basically the pathways from your brain to your mouth do not develop properly. She has all the language, her receptive language is, is perfect. She's amazing, um, but her ability to take those words and actually form the sounds and produce the words is um, disrupted. And so what she's learning in her speech therapy is to manually um, build those pathways. So it's a step-by-step -step process. So that was the beginning of it. Um, and you knew something was wrong too, as a parent, you, absolutely. you just knew. Uh, yeah, at two she could say mama, dada, some animal sounds, and then it was pointing and grunting, yeah. and that was it. Yeah. Um, so that didn't seem normal to me. So it didn't end there, it just, it continued, and, and maybe because of, partly as well, so after you started to get this under control, what happened? 
So um, when we started to do the speech therapy, um, everything was going well. Um, but as she started to get older, we noticed that she was really exhibiting signs of anxiety. She had high anxiety, and it, it started to really impact her socially. She wasn't um, interacting with other children the way that the other children were. She would really sit out. She didn't want to participate in anything. Um, we always had to be beside her. She couldn't leave our, our side. Um, and so we, we didn't know what to do there. Um, and I think that's part of the problem is um, we didn't know how to access services for her. We went back to our family doctor. He sent us to a, uh, what's it? A developmental pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And they said they couldn't assess her until she was five. Mm -hmm. And so our hands were tied. Um, we're very fortunate that we had a, a connection to somebody who worked with CASA and she had suggested to look into the pre-kindergarten program. And so we met with them and uh, they heard our story and they were able to help us get her into the pre-kindergarten program. And that's where she started. And she has come leaps and bounds. Uh, I always like to <laughs> tell everybody I talk about when we started at CASA, she just started this fall. But my husband and I, we would switch days that we took her and we would sit in the front of the classroom. Um, we basically made an invisible line to try to help her just go into the classroom and we sat on the floor in the front of the classroom for the first three weeks of school and then the teachers worked with us to slowly take us away in increments and the first time it happened it was an absolute screaming meltdown it was horrible and then slowly we were able to build from there and we could be away from her longer and longer and so for the first time in her four years of life we have been able to drop her off with somebody other than her grandmas um, and and leave without her being extremely anxious. Well, can you imagine what that experience would have been like if you were in a system that said, you know, you've got to wait until she's six. Uh, and, and, you know, to be able to, to have those tools, like how important is that for a parent? <laughs> yeah. Because that's what you got through CASA. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's... Um, that's something that we, you know, CASA has helped us yeah. immensely as parents. We did not know how to help her. Yeah. And I'm, it has been such a blessing in our life because we're able to work with, um, with the people at CASA, with the teachers, um, and they're able to give us tools to help her because her anxiety is not just at school. Mm -hmm. it's, it's our entire life. And now we're able to, you know, create strategies in certain situations, take things where she's excelling at school, bring them home, remind her, you did this at school, you know, let's try to do this at home. And we are seeing progress with her, so. Okay, we're gonna come back, mm -hmm. unless you want to add something. Oh, no, it's just so wonderful, so <laughs> yeah. wonderful to hear. And I think the, the, the point about when there is an issue in one area of development, mm -hmm. it, it, it overflows and affects mm -hmm. It affects other areas of development as well. So you, we need to be thinking about the whole child, mm -hmm. not, just, not just the speech, not just the anxiety, but the whole child and the whole family. Yes, and, and how I, fortunate she is to have a parent whose face lights up when she comes. Yes, yes. that's never been an issue. <laughs> um, our next panelist is Dr. Natalie Pradelek, and uh, she is passionate about early education inclusion and teacher pedagogy, which was the focus actually of her doctorate. Her career spans 
30 years as a teacher, senior manager in Alberta education, and central leader in Edmonton Public Schools. She is a recipient of two quite prestigious awards, an Alberta Excellence in Teaching Award and the Alberta Teachers Association Advocate for Young Children Award. Dr. Uh, Pridiluck brings a very well-rounded approach to her work. She is passionate about life, music, dance, and art. She was a music teacher and she's traveled around the world as a Shunka dancer and with two other Ukrainian groups. And she's a huge outdoor enthusiast. So happy to have you on the <laughs> panel. There are so many things we could talk about. So, um, so you began your career with, uh, with pre-kindergarten and kindergarten children. Tell us a bit about that experience and what you learned. So uh, I, I was a kindergarten teacher for many years and um, absolutely loved working with young children. Um, and I always uh, felt intuitively that relationship and love were the, the most important things that I had to give to young children and that I wanted to make that day that they were with me, that time that they were with me, the most important part of their day, that I wanted them to love school, to look forward to coming to school. And as I went through my um, teaching career, uh, I discovered lots of different pedagogical practices, but really gravitated towards the philosophy of Reggio Emilia, which was very play-based, um, very much viewing the child as capable and strength-based, and, um, and really looking at the whole child. So um, that uh, I think that concept of children having a hundred languages, mm -hmm. um, whether it, they dance or they express themselves through um, art or building something, um, that was really joyful for me to be alongside children in that way. And so as I've um, gone through my career, I still am incredibly inspired um, to ensure that we have the best, um, the best teaching and learning in our kindergarten and our pre-kindergarten classrooms so that all children can benefit from that. Well, I thought about you a lot, actually, when Dr. Clinton was speaking, because of some of the things that you see as well and that you believe. Uh, I know, it's okay. Uh, the, um, but, but one of them is the, that, that well-rounded uh, part, and, and you see that. It's not just about the sciences or math, or, but it's learning how to play. It's the music. I'd like to talk a bit about what you learned when you were teaching immigrant children. Yeah, so that was a really powerful um, experience in my career. I was in a school where uh, there was a significant number of children coming from Vietnam, from Cambodia, from refugee camps. Um, it was also a very vulnerable community, so uh, lots of um, uh, poverty, um, you know, lots of, uh, I guess, what I now know is toxic stress happening to children. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I found um, for children, they were coming in, kind of, they were afraid, they didn't uh, know necessarily the language or the culture, really different experience. Um, music was my connector for them, and so uh, we learned songs, we learned, um, we learned dance, we really expressed ourselves in, in other ways. And that catalyst of music, um, I found the children would sing before they would, it was kind of like they were trying out the language a little bit yeah. uh, through, through rhyme and through song. Um, I even have a funny story about one little girl, she was um, from Cambodia and she would go to the listening center 
in the days with tape cassettes. And she would put the cassette in and she would listen to this song. And one day she was singing along and I thought, my gosh, that sounds like Ukrainian. And what I realized is the tape had two sides. One side was Ukrainian, one side was English. She preferred the Ukrainian side and had learned an entire song <laughs> in Ukrainian. So um, children have an amazing ability to, to learn, but that actually sparked my journey into my master's degree. So how, do, how does music um, foster language development? And um, it was, yeah, just a fascinating journey. So I'm a big believer in music as a powerful language for all of us. Tell us a bit about the role you have now, because you've kind of gone beyond the teaching and you're taking the things that you've, that you've learned and you're taking it to the next level. So um, in my role now, I do support um, kindergarten and pre-kindergarten programming. And, um, you know, listening to um, Kristen's story mm -hmm. is a story of many of our parents. And um, what, what I began seeing when, we, when I first started my job was that we had many children in kin entering kindergarten that really could have benefited from a pre-kindergarten experience. Mm -hmm. And families either um, didn't know how to access supports, didn't know what door to knock on, um, weren't necessarily persistent, or maybe thought uh, developmentally their child would outgrow something, or they just didn't have the means to seek out uh, a pre-kindergarten program. So um, I'm really passionate about that pre-kindergarten experience and really helping more families access that support early so that kindergarten isn't that first um, the first entry point um, for a family to find out that uh, their child might need that extra support. I want families to have lots of time to process that, to work with their child and to have us work with, um, work with their child in pre-kindergarten. So when they get to kindergarten, sometimes we've leveled that playing field for those for those children, that we've made uh, enough of a difference, enough of an impact in their development, and enough support for those families to learn all of the things that Dr. Clinton was talking about, mm -hmm. so that uh, they come to kindergarten and they're on par with, with their peers. Forgive me for asking, for not knowing the answer, but do we have pre-kindergarten available to all children? In Alberta, I don't think we do, do we? And unfortunately, we, we do and we don't. So um, Alberta Education sets the funding guidelines for that. Mm -hmm. And so it isn't universal access. So in Ontario, it is. They mm -hmm. can come in at, uh, I believe, four years of age. Is that Three correct? years, eight months. Three years, eight months. So um, that is universal access. Yeah. Uh, we don't have universal access to early childhood until kindergarten. So um, that is, you know, that isn't the same and would be something to definitely advocate, uh, advocate for in, in the province of Alberta because it makes a huge difference. Do we, have any, do we have any stats or anything that back that that show how important that would be or what difference that could make long-term financially and other yeah. ways? Yeah, yeah. No, there's, a, there's a lot of good evidence on why investing early mm -hmm. makes a difference. And uh, in fact, the, the, the powerful economic, and I don't like mm -hmm. starting with an I economic know, argument, but the powerful economic argument is so strong. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a paper written by a, a, a Gordon Cleveland in Ontario that they were introducing a full day for two and a half year olds, full day uh, childcare 
for two and a half year olds, free, uh, until the government changed, of course. But yeah, there's very good evidence. Wow. Okay, I'm going to move on to our next panelist so they get a chance to speak. Um, she is clinical lead of the infant and preschool program at CASA. Uh, Chelsea Ullman is a registered psychologist with a master's in counseling psychology. She works as a mental health consultant with CASA's community geographic team, uh, supporting therapists in rural communities in their work with children aged five and under. Chelsea is a parent herself. She and her husband have a very energetic four-year-old, <laughs> and, uh, and they're foster parents to a nine-month-old as well. So welcome to the panel, Chelsea. Thank you. Um, let's first of all talk about the programs that you run at CASA. Give us an idea of, of you know, the, that sort of that preschool head start kind of uh, programming and what it does. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be passing that around sure. shortly. So we have our pre-kindergarten program, which is the, the school-based program that's offered at CASA Center. And then we have infant and preschool services, uh, which I'm a part of. So we have our clinic-based program where families come in, they see a therapist, we help them navigate services, we give them certain kinds of mental health treatment. But we also have our, our Head Start program yeah. where we have clinical support workers and mental health therapists who consult to the different Head Start agencies in Edmonton. So that involves capacity building with staff as well as uh, supporting families uh, for referred children uh, and, and those types of pieces. And then we also have a program that's called CATCH and it's meant to support children who ha are receiving services from Children's Services. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are kids who, who might be in foster care, kinship care, or have a family enhancement agreement where we, we support those families as well and that's kind of nested within our clinic program. And so these are all referral cases? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The nice thing about our clinic program is that parents can self-refer. So they don't need to go to any other gatekeepers or any other doctors. They can, they can refer themselves and, and get services. Interesting, this program you have where you go into uh, rural communities as well mm -hmm. and you assist. Tell us a bit about that. So that's a separate program from the infant and preschool services. Right. Uh, CGT is, uh, our mandate is to support therapists in rural communities, so we have a team of five individuals who do that. Yeah. My job in that team is to support therapists who are working with kids in the preschool age. So that involves traveling around, doing educational events, and doing consultation and those types of things. Okay, do you, from, from what you've seen, or what are some of the common themes, I guess, that, that you've seen in the work that you do? Uh, I would say that um, supporting, um, as Dr. Clinton mentioned, the parent-child relationship yeah. is really, really big because sometimes the problem isn't necessarily what's going on with the child, but what's going on in that dyad, and so that's, that's a really important piece. Uh, certainly supporting kids with, with anxiety and with attention problems, those are some big things that come up. Uh, and also supporting, um, supporting the families to access services. So really taking this community-based approach is, is so important. Sometimes even just helping parents navigate the different professionals they're seeing and having, um, having somebody who can communicate all together. Um, we use a lot of language that's not very familiar for, for the everyday parent, and so that can be confusing as well. So that's a big part of what we do too. One of the things that when you and I spoke that you mentioned was really important is having all the different touch points, mm -hmm. not just one. 
Absolutely. So I think that navigating services is really hard for a lot of families and so when we're able to communicate together and so whether it's with ParentLink uh, and they can help the family access services or, or get the, getting them into the right school and those sorts of pieces, it's, it's really important. Okay, we're going to come back mm -hmm. to that. Um, our final panelist is Kathy Burgett. And Kathy wears two hats. She is the chair of the Edmonton City Centre Early Years Coalition and she is Program Director of Norwood Child and Family Resource Centre. Mm -hmm. uh, Kathy's been working in early learning field for 27 years. We've got some great experience on this panel. And what she sees is that the world around us just hasn't gotten the message yet. So we're really happy to have you on the panel. Thanks so much, Kathy. Um, so, and I keep asking, yes. <laughs> First of all, let's, um, let's start with Norwood because um, because what you offer, I think, is a lot more broad and right. deep than what most people know about. Right. So our programs and services are offered to children from birth all the way to the age of five. So we focus on those early years, which we feel are, and we know, are very important for that yeah. development of the brain. Um, we offer, and this is not working. We offer a variety of services um, that support children and families to build their brain and be the best that they possibly can be mm -hmm. um, in a variety of ways, um, through direct programming for children, uh, through parent education groups, and through family support. And then, uh, and then what about this coalition as well? Uh, I mean, one of the things that, that one of your big things that you talked about is how difficult it is when everyone works in silos. Right. And, uh, and that's a theme that seems to be all the way around the board. So tell us a bit about what you do with the coalition. Sure. So I, am, um, I represent one of seven coalitions in the Edmonton area. And uh, what we do is we work together to bring a variety of people together to highlight the importance of the early years yeah. and get the message out to anyone who will listen. So we try to impact um, families, um, community, different agencies, businesses, um, leaders to understand that the early years is pivotal in the success for all of our children in the future. Um, you asked just a few minutes ago yeah. about the um, impact of us all working together and what is the, the investment yeah. and when we work to prevent um, issues from happening with children for the long term and what you said about our children, what is going to happen in the next seven generations, that's the work that we want to do is really um, expressing the importance of that early years time of children's lives. And we can make a difference if we start to invest in those early years. Why is it such a challenge to get that message out? Why is it so hard to get that understanding that those early years are so important. I mentioned earlier, it's like a common theme in all of our panels, mm -hmm. early intervention, early intervention. And yet, the funding, or it just doesn't seem to, it just doesn't seem to happen. Why is that? How, what, what, what needs to happen? Well, one of the things that, uh, that I think about a lot is the fact that uh, children don't vote, that we don't, <laughs> We don't have the voice of, of children as, um, as clear and loud uh, and in the faces of those <coughs> who are making decisions as we, as we, absolutely, as we absolutely need to. 
I think we also still have a bit of a mythology um, uh, that, uh, around, uh, around childhood and what childhood is like. Mm -hmm. And uh, people aren't catching up enough to realize that it's not. Um, uh, or I, I, I talk about um, and, and worry about our children being the canaries in the mine shaft mm -hmm. that are telling us that as a society we're not focusing and emphasizing on nearly enough on creating a sense of belonging and connection mm -hmm. and that there are, there are, we're being driven by the wrong drivers. One of the things that a lot of educators are really concerned about is what they're seeing in school and what you talked about is there, there's an increase in anxiety, an increase in uh, ADHD, an increase in different things. And, and what can be done? What, what, what is causing that? What can be done to, uh, you know, to, to help children with whatever is going on now that's causing some of these? Or is that? That's a kind of a, not a very good way of putting the question, but I think you yeah, get what I well, mean. Yeah, well, one, so I'm a child psychiatrist, yes. so I can say things like this. Yes. I think we're <coughs> absolutely overdiagnosing ADHD. Yeah. I think that what we're seeing is children being put in environments where, they're, uh, where uh, their um, abilities and the demands are not being matched. There absolutely is such a thing as ADHD, and for sure there are kids with it. But I really, really worry that we have environments, educational environments and other environments, where the expectations and the demands are not developmentally, not de developmentally appropriate. Mm -hmm. And you get into a, 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 a cycle of um, he's not doing this, and it is predominantly uh, little boys, he's not doing this, he can't sit still, he's not completing this DRA level of reading, and it starts a spiral. They say it's ADHD, well, maybe it's not, maybe it's stress, maybe it's not misbehavior, maybe it's lagging skills. Uh, but we, we, we want to find it, fix it, you know, very quickly and, mm -hmm. and label and diagnose rather than say, hold on a second here. Is, we're asking, is the child ready for kindergarten? When we should be asking, is kindergarten ready, ready. for this child? Mm. <coughs> now, <coughs> Natalie, you said that, uh, that, you know, behaviors are just the tip of the iceberg, that, that that's a signal of something way deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I have a, got something caught in my throat. Um, I, I am a big believer of kids moving. And, um, you know, when I think about, um, you know, when we're talking about behaviors, um, and sometimes parents say, well, you know, what could I do? Or a teacher asks, what can yeah. I do? And I think, you know, we have a nature deficit. Um, kids need to be outside. And if I have advice for parents, it's go outside, take your child right. outside and play outside. Yeah. And, um, you know, kids sitting on the carpet uh, for what is beyond developmentally appropriate, those kinds of things escalate. Um, mm -hmm. We have a lot of children that are living in condominiums or, you know, they're in, mm -hmm. in boxes where they can't move. So I think, you know, when we think about movement, when we think about children moving, I think allowing for that mm -hmm. de-escalates and, and we know we feel better after we move. Um, it, it creates less stress. And um, so to me, that's, you know, just a key piece. Um, it's, it's one piece of, of 
what we want to see in our classrooms. One piece we, you know, of advice to give to parents is get kids moving. Yeah. I know you want to say something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with Dr. Clinton in that yeah. sometimes we, we over-pathologize yeah. behaviors that are typical in, mm -hmm. in many children. Um, but part of the difficulty as well is when we don't have universal pre-K programs, mm -hmm. children can't access um, the support that they need unless they are diagnosed with something and unless we put kind of those words to it. Mm -hmm. And so fam there's families in situations where they can't afford preschool the child is too young for kindergarten, uh, the, the program that they need costs money, and so then what, where else do they go? I think we were, we were mo moving in a good direction with some of the $25 a day childcare mm -hmm. so that some of these families could access it. Um, we talk about how sometimes we're in silos, but a lot of times the families are in silos as well, and they don't have community supports, they don't have you know, the grandmas and the grandpas and the aunties and the uncles to help, and so they feel really stuck and alone. Mm -hmm. One of the things that the coalitions is trying to do is really increase the knowledge of people understanding about how the brain develops. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about that early brain development, we know a stat that um, the brain develops between zero and three, 90 percent of the brain is developed. That doesn't mean you learn everything for the rest of your life by the time you're three, but all those pathways, all those connections are made usually 90 percent by the time you're three. So we need to help people understand the importance of those early years mm -hmm. and what it is that we need to do. One of the ways we do that within the coalitions is we play a game, and it's called the brain architecture game. And it's a game that we are, um, uh, we are actually, the, the woman that uh, produced the game, the neuroscientist who produced the game, uh, Dr. Judy Cameron, um, stated last week when she was here speaking that Edmonton is the um, biggest uh, player of this game in the world. We have educated the most people in the world on the brain architecture game through the coalition activities by going out and playing this game. And so what's the game? The game is fun. <laughs> it's a 45 minute to an hour game that we play with anybody who wants to play. And um, what you do is you work on building a brain and you get some different tools to build a brain. It's really with straws and pipe cleaners. And then you dealt cards in your life that affect the brain. And as those weights are put on the brain, it creates toxic stress and then the brain doesn't always develop in the way so people start by building this I'm gonna build the best brain and it's gonna be so awesome and then they get dealt this card and then they get dealt that card and then they get dealt this card or maybe they get a delta card that's about someone is positive in your life and suddenly they get to add three more straws to the structure of their brain mm -hmm. so it's a way of playing a game to have people really understand the importance so we play this game with with um, different, we're starting to branch out into different realms. So it used to be just, you know, um, childcare providers or people in the education system. And now we're starting to play the game with professionals, with businesses, with hospitals, with nursing staff, with anybody, with foster care um, providers. So people can really understand the importance. If we all get behind those early years and the importance of the early years, we will have a different result. So, go ahead. Let's tell the story about 
<laughs> sorry, it was such a good, good. story. I told yeah. a story earlier about a program that we developed at uh, Norwood, and it's called Brain Builders. And what we noticed that there is a gap between uh, families understanding how to build their child's brain. So we all want the very best for our children. We all want them to be the smartest. We all, all want them to be the best. But we have to do very intentional things in order to build those brains. So we develop a curriculum that goes over 20 weeks that focuses on brain development as well as the other developmental domains. And the mom, um, it also includes a home visitation component, so we have the facilitator go into the home to bridge the learning. And she went into the home, and um, the mom said, when she asked, you know, what have you I implemented this week? And the mom said, there's less yelling in my house now for me, because when my children are stopping to tie their shoe or do up their zipper, I now wait for them because I know it's building their brain. Those are the things we need to make an impact on, and that will make a difference. Yeah. You know, right. one of the other one of the com common themes, and actually you talked about it when we spoke, is the fact that if you've got a child who's misbehaving or a child who doesn't want you to leave, people look at you like it's your fault. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they think that I'm, you know, over, you're, you're overprotective or you're, you're not allowing them to do something or they don't understand what's really happening inside. They don't understand that I'm, I'm dealing with my daughter who has extreme anxiety. This is not just a behavioral thing. Um, and that what I'm doing is I'm doing the best I can to help her with the tools that I have, the very minimal tools I have as a parent to understand how this is really impacting her. And um, yeah, the, the, the judgment and um, it, it's hard to take. It is when you when you see people are trying to tell you, well, you should just do this with her, and I'm like, well, it's it's a little more complicated than that. So how how do we help parents? How do we help parents with with uh, you know with young children? Talk about toxic stress. There's always going to be a certain amount of it in any environment. There's no perfect environment. So what can we do to help parents? I think. I, I think the work of the coalitions, um, yeah. one, of the, one of the big pieces of science that we're learning is that loneliness and social isolation uh, is not good for you. Uh, and the more I travel across Canada, the more I see that young parents are increasingly socially isolated. Mm -hmm. So if you are a young parent, you're socially isolated. Um, you don't have connections with other mums and dads and partners. And then on top of that, if you've got a child who has a special right, then you're judged, so you're even more and more. So I think that what we need to be doing is de doing the, the deconstructing of how we've regimented everything, mm -hmm. have coalitions, have grassroots be saying, how do we meet the needs of the families in a heart-to-heart -heart kind of way rather than here's the criteria in order for you to in order for you to fit mm -hmm. i think we need to bring the civility back into civic engagement and reach out to create that sense of belonging diminish the loneliness which by the way releases oxytocin a neurotransmitter that neutralizes cortisol so it's more connectedness and belonging in relationships Chelsea, what are you seeing? 
Uh, I think that when, when someone's a new parent, mm -hmm. there are people that they are seeing as part of caring for their child. Usually that's nurses at the health unit, um, oftentimes that's checkups, and um, Kristen's story is not, uh, is, exists in isolation. A lot of parents go to their doctor and they hear, it's normal, they'll grow out of it, and sometimes that's true but sometimes it's not because we know that early identification is important and so I think if if more more doctors and more nurses were using global screeners like the ages and stages questionnaire or even just taking a few extra minutes to listen to a parent um, because even if a child might grow out of it but if it's stressing the parent out that's an issue and they might need some support with that and so I think that having more um, pervasive access to some of these screeners professionals knowing how to make referrals, I think that would help a lot for parents to feel less isolated. Natalie, you said that classrooms should be the children's, the best part of their day, mm -hmm. and that there are sometimes, you know, a teacher, a classroom setting can be a buffer for children to what's mm -hmm. going on at home. Yeah, absolutely, and I think um, just piggybacking on, on a couple of things, yeah. um, you know, when we talk about um, that social connection for families, schools often are that hub, are the first place that um, families will bring their child to. So I think um, schools have an important role to play in um, supporting that core story of brain development, helping families to understand that. So part of um, the education that we do with our staff, um, with our educational assistants who work with young children, with our staff, with our teachers, is helping giving them those uh, understandings so that they understand uh, how brain develops, that experiences, I think I'm cutting out here, that experiences uh, build brain. Mm -hmm. And so they help families to understand um, those key components of helping them child uh, so that that was the piece around I know I think it's yeah kind of cutting yeah. thanks yeah. Um, so that was the piece I wanted to address just about the social context yeah. and helping families connect families to those um, those key understandings about their child's development um, I also think that the role our teachers play is hugely important um, you know we talk about parents being a child's first and most important teacher but in Arabic culture, they talk about the teacher being the child's second and most important parent. So um, I think teachers of young children um, have such an important role to play. So they not only need to understand the um, a really deep understanding of child development, but they also have to have the disposition of building relationships, placing social emotional development first so that Children feel they belong. Children feel that they have strengths and um, potential to succeed. Mm -hmm. And that um, I, I often think of our classrooms as being a microcosm of what we'd like to see in our society. So if we have an inclusive world in our, in our um, classrooms where everyone belongs, everyone is welcomed, everyone feels love and connection, um, that goes a long way to um, perhaps uh, shaping a society um, that is accepting and, and caring and loving. So um, I probably got off track here, but yeah, anyways, yeah. that's my belief. That. You know, you've had so much experience in so many different ways, and I, and I, I think you've got to be really motivated to be in a position now where you can actually affect change in schools. 
at, a, at an administrative or senior level. What is that motivation? What would you like to see? So um, I think just like every person yeah. uh, that's sitting here, we're all passionate about um, having um, children experience success um, in their journey through life. So it's not just about school, but it's about, um, it's about having them be um, lifelong learners and having success in life and caring for one another. So I guess um, if I could be queen of the world, um, I don't know, but uh, I, you know, I would really like to see um, you know, a, a real focus in our society on early childhood, um, on supporting um, our parents so that we have the resources we need so parents don't have to knock on um, five doors or ten doors and tell their story ten times to get the support they need. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I, I think, um, you know, the more vocal we are about it, um, and we're also a data-driven society, so the more we can show that we are making an impact um, on, on um, the success of children, um, you know, maybe we have an impact uh, on our society to, to make that happen. And I think we're a pretty passionate and motivated group, um, you know, as far as, I, and I'm, I don't just mean the people here, but people that are in early childhood, uh, the world of early childhood, I think we do seek out those connections really intentionally because we believe strongly in the fact that we are making a difference. Yeah, because yeah, I thought about you. When I saw that graph with all of the different silos, because that's one of your ballywicks and one of the things that drives you with your coalitions. Yeah. Um, oh, it's working now. Um, sorry. <laughs> that's exactly it. Working yeah. together is, we're stronger together. So I always um, say in life, we need to work smarter, not harder. Mm -hmm. And everything takes time. And one of the things I say is that if we can come together and we can all give a little bit of time together as a collective, we can make a big impact. If we all stay in our silos and just do our own little work, we're only affecting those people in those silos. Mm -hmm. And so our job is to mobilize and get together and to be that voice of the importance of the early years. We have a very important job to do. Um, Dr. Clinton put up the slide about the early developmental instrument mm -hmm. and what happened, you know, in Ontario. And I'm just when I share the um, EDI data for Alberta, uh, we have 25% of the children that were um, went through that um, testing are at risk or vulnerable for later um, issues in childhood. That's in Alberta. In Edmonton. 30% of our children are at risk or vulnerable. And that's the data from 2016. Wow. How can we ignore that fact? Mm -hmm. One in three children are affected to be at risk or vulnerable for later issues. That's not the seven generations I want to be part of. I want to change that moving forward for every child and family. Do you see? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see movement? Uh, do you see movement happening in that direction? Um, yes, in some ways. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think we need to strengthen is the understanding um, from funders, from government, as well as for-profit business. Uh, my dream in this world is for us to be um, the nonprofit sector, the world of 
childhood, we're very polite, we're very nice, we're very kind, we're very quiet. And I think it's time to stop being quiet. Mm -hmm. I think we need to get louder and we need to find partners that can support us mm -hmm. to really make the difference. Mm -hmm. And that's how we need to grow. So starting, um, just throwing out some of these stats, these statistics, you know, tell your neighbor, do you know one in three children are at risk or vulnerable? People will be like, really? What can I do? And that's what we need to build that momentum. I also would like to add that I think it might also lift the judgment yes. um, around parents. I know just for me personally, we talked about the social isolation and what I found that when I started hanging out with my friends who were moms at the same time and my daughter was, um, she wouldn't leave my side, I couldn't have a conversation. She wasn't playing with their kids, that was insulting to them, um, but they didn't quite understand that it wasn't, had nothing to do with their children. It was, you know, Elsie yeah. was just having a hard time with it. and. Um, Slightly lost my train of thought, <laughs> but um, I lost my train no, of thought. I, and that comes back to what Thank you talked you. about with external womb. Mm -hmm. Love that term. It's beautiful. <laughs> I got it back. Yes, sorry. Um, yes, it's it's lifting the judgment even within the mom groups with friends. So if they understand mm -hmm. the one in three, they're yeah. no longer looking at it as a problem. They're look, right. wondering what they can do to help. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am, um, at this point, I'd like to open up and find out, <clears throat> yeah, we traditionally, we have a very mixed audience. We've got people who are in education, uh, people who are in health, in different uh, sectors, social work, and, um, and we'd like to know, what would you like to know from this panel? Does anyone have questions or have a question? What would you like to, yes, go ahead. Oh, we've got a microphone here somewhere. There, it's coming. Oh, I've got one here. Here. Oh, hang on. The audio guy's going to go and turn it on. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'm um, yeah. just wondering, how long does it take for a child to be assessed? Once there's a, either a school teacher has identified a concern or a medical doctor or the public health nurse, how long is it taking children to be assessed nowadays? That's a great question. Uh, part of it is it depends where you go because um, we have an infant and preschool services program at CASA. There's another place at Edmonton called Elm Tree where there's psychiatrists who, who can see kids pretty quickly. But at CASA, some of the shifts we've been making recently is it was taking, kids were waiting for about five or six months, which when you're three, that's a sixth of your life that you're waiting, uh, time that you could, could have been spending accessing services parents knowing how to support their child. So what we've moved towards is when we receive a referral, um, we are doing something we call enhanced intake, which is basically um, parents get booked right away into a, a parent education group. We have three different sessions we run where we talk about child development, what to expect from CASA, what, what to expect from your typical three or four year old child. Mm -hmm. The next time they come, we talk about emotional regulation. We talk about upstairs, downstairs brain. We talk about um, how the brain is built and we talk about stress states and how to get your child spending more time in the green zone and, and those types of pieces. And then the third time we talk about 
proactive parenting, um, improving behavior through proactive parenting. So we talk about how to give instructions to your child, how to use visuals, how to, uh, things like get your child's attention first, uh, and also how to set limits. Uh, so we're trying to do some things that all parents really would benefit from. Uh, sometimes that meets the, the, the parents' needs and then they don't need any further support. Uh, if that doesn't, then they can access other, other groups and so they might go to a circle of security parenting group or they might go to uh, something else. We might, we might find, yes, actually what you need is a speech assessment so that you can get into the right school. So we're, we're trying to do it in a way to triage things so that parents can access services more quickly. If you need a more specialized assessment, if you're, if you're the doctor is querying something like autism. Unfortunately, the wait is over a year uh, to get wow. an assessment for that, typically. That's crazy. Yeah. I just want to add that um, another source, um, mm -hmm. right from zero to three months, is um, taking part in something, ages and stages questionnaires. And the ages and stage, stages questionnaires, social emotional development. That's done um, with families with parents and practitioners together to assess their child's development in all the different developmental domains. And what that does is that early detection that something might be happening for your child. And then we can support families in either strengthening that or going for more further assessment. So it kind of gets the ball rolling earlier. Where can you get one of those? Any Parent Link Center in Alberta. Parent Link Centers are located all across um, the province and the city. And just Google Parent Link Center. One of their mandates is that every child in the province of Alberta should have regular ASQ screenings. In our organization, last year we completed 750 unique screens on children, and 300 of those 750 children were referred on for further assessment. That's early intervention. That's when we get in the door and help those children be successful earlier. So that's what we want to do. Um, I think the other, oh sorry, I was just going to comment on Edmonton Public as well and mm -hmm. uh, some of the other school jurisdictions as well. One of the things that we do is a screening process also. So we typically do that in um, uh, March, April, and yeah, I think I need the mic. <laughs> Um, so we typically do our screening process in March and April so families can sign up to be screened. Um, we screened, uh, we typically screen well over 700 uh, children. In that screening, um, it's usually a speech language pathologist, sometimes an occupational therapist. Um, we also do a questionnaire. We have um, uh, multicultural health brokers who are there to support families who don't speak English as a first language. So uh, we do that screening to see if um, they're able to come to our pre-kindergarten and what kind of support they might need. Sometimes it's just language support, but sometimes it's developmental. Um, and then as well, um, we do rely on our healthcare partners to, um, to do assessments for children. We do our own assessments as well in our pre-kindergarten and our kindergarten programs. But um, typically, that's, that's also what we do to ensure families can access um, the supports they need earlier. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other, other questions? Right there. It's dark. <laughs> <clears throat> thank you. Um, one thing I would love to hear your comments on is something that I think a lot of our young families are using, uh, which is screen time. And I think screen time is really affecting the social-emotional development, but I haven't heard too much 
yeah. about how it's affecting and the impacts of this. So I'd love to hear what you think. Children, adults. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I should give a plug for coming to Taylor, Taylor on, um, on Saturday, because I'll be talking about screens, the, the digital, what we need to know, not just for the early years, but for later on as well. So, um, the, the, there's a challenge around screen time and media use, in that the world is one that is, has screens and is, is part of our life. And so what we need to be doing is finding the ways to wisely use screens. So how do we go about doing that? How do we gather the evidence that addresses your question, are they, are they harmful for kids? And so there was just, I was just at the Zero to Three conference in um, Fort Lauderdale and they had a whole day session on this. And what we know is that we've got recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Canadian Pediatric Society, and it says zero screen time for children under two, one hour for children above that to, to, uh, uh, to five, with the parent with them. So then you ask parents, what are you actually doing? And what we see is there's a lot of screen time, even when kids are, are, are um, even when the guidelines are known. What we do know, and there's wonderful work from Calgary, from uh, Dr. Sherry Madigan, is that when there is excessive use of screens in very little children, then the, the learning is not as, as profound, is not as deep. So parents use it because they think it's educational. Well, you have to be very, very careful and find educational programs because the majority of them are not. The, the, lang the learning is not transferred. Uh, it's not deep that comes from screens. But for me, even greater concern is the technoference. So interference, except it's technoference, mm -hmm. that has to do with what you were alluding to. And that is when adults are with little ones, if a phone is around, is it affecting their parent sense, their spidey sense? And the research is showing that if you've got a phone that you're attending to, then you are not doing the face-to-face that kids need in order, to, uh, in order to, to grow the brain, everything that you've been hearing here. The problem is, who wants to be the party pooper of, of, of parents' lives? You know, oh, I'm going to do a study. One of my colleagues said, I want to do a study on, on home visiting and, and cell phone use. And, uh, and her daughter-in-law said, oh, here we go. Here comes the parent blaming. So we have to find the balance. We have to find the balance between saying, how be reflective. How are you using your, your screens? Um, is it damaging? One mom, young mom asked me, she said, you know, once I'd looked at my, I looked at my cell phone when I was nursing my baby when she was three months old. Did I damage her? And I thought, oh my God, yeah. we can't be giving this kind of message. What we need to be saying is have balance. Mm -hmm. What babies need is face-to-face -face time. If you're on your phone, realize you are not going to be bringing the, fo the kind of focus that babies need to have the majority of the time. They should not have anything under two. After two, it should be 
in, in company and you're working with them with the smart apps or whatever it is. They're the recommendations, but we have a long way to go before we can figure out what is the best advice. And we need to be listening to young parents who say, this is my lifeline. So it's complicated. The only thing I would add is um, it is very um, interesting to say no screen time, no screen time, yeah. screen time is bad. But we're not saying what you should do. So I think we need to pair that with education about screen time and then these are five things that you could do that is going to be impactful for your child. So really that, that tag teaming of information is really important for young families. But where does a, where does a young mom, for example, get that information? So there's lots of public health campaigns. Um, in, in Ontario, for example, the Power Off and Play was a huge, uh, a huge campaign that went and they gave ideas about what are some of the play activities that you can do um, instead of uh, just handing the baby the uh, baby the uh, uh, the phone. I think I think we need to as as, as children's um, warriors. Um, I think that we need to be doing a better job of letting parents know that they, they are their child's best toy. They are the best thing in a child's life, not the phone. So recently when I did a consultation, the nurse was telling me the mum handed the baby, handed her baby a phone when he was changing her diaper, when she was changing her diaper. And the nurse said, oh, why are you doing that? And she said, well, because if I don't do this, he wriggles too much. And you know, I've got five kids and wriggling during diaper change is normal. You don't need to hand a phone to that in that situation. You need to talk about how stinky the poopy diaper is and, and give them language. But the young families may not be getting that kind of, that, 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 that kind of normalizing information, you know? I, I have to say though, as a parent, Good luck taking that away from my son in particular, mm -hmm. because from the time he was a year and a half, he was all over my computer, and he's now 30 years old. So I can just imagine what it's like now with cell phones, with parents. How do you, I mean, I don't know. How do you keep, how do you keep your kids from doing that when they're screaming for it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> you have something to say? Go ahead. I think it's not as hard as we think. And I think that's the message that we need to give parents. We don't need to have, we don't need to go to school for five years. We just need to build our toolbox. What's in your toolbox, right? So Jean just said it. Instead of, you know, trying to get them to stay still, it's not developmentally appropriate. It's not what they do. Why don't you sing to them? It doesn't have to be rocket science. That's the things that we're really understanding about our parent education that we're doing. It's the simple things. Go for a walk, look at a tree, pick up a leaf, Stop, when the leaves are on the ground, crunch through them. Oh, do you hear that sound? Where do you think it's coming from? Ask questions. That's what we need to do. And when we can motivate that change, it comes very easily. We think it's hard. We think it's climbing a mountain, but it's just taking small steps towards getting to the top. So wise. Um, we have time for one question. I can't believe the time has gone by so quickly. And my apologies, by the way, to the people behind. <laughs> The way that we're set up, we've got people our backs to them. Hi, everyone. My question um, will be for Jean and maybe for all of you. Um, so I work with uh, an early learning program, a Head Start program, and we've noticed that most 
families, especially the immigrant families, don't want to hear anything mental health. Mm -hmm. um, I know during intake, I'll have to explain to them what it actually means when it comes to children of that age, you know, when we're talking about social emotional skills. Yeah. I don't know if any of you have experienced this and how do you, you know, talk to those parents to get them to understand. I've had parents walk out of the office and pull their children out of program because we mentioned mental health. And I know for most of those families, the trauma behind it, the stigma behind it is part of that problem. But um, I don't know if there is any plan in the future to change it and keep it, you know, to just social emotional or, you know, and there may be, maybe, maybe mental health will come into play in the future, I don't know. Everybody's going to speak. <laughs> oh, I, I agree completely with you. I think, uh, I think even my colleagues at, uh, in Toronto at the Infant Mental Health Promotion at SickKids really wrestle with this. I personally think that we need to be calling it social and emotional development. Um, uh, that we don't need families to be overburdened with even more stigma, uh, and that that's what we talk about. And, and use that use the, the the definition instead of children's mental health, we call it children's well-being. Is all about the development of attachment relationships and, and exploring their world and learning their emotional regulation. I agree with you completely. It's a, it's a challenge. I think another thing to remember is that a lot of a lot of parents, a lot of families, they innately know what to do to support their child's social emotional development, mm -hmm. and and tapping into that can be helpful. So you know, finding out what are their what are their routines at home, what are things do they like to do together, and, and supporting them to do to do those pieces without calling it something like mental health can be helpful. Uh, you know, a lot of um, a lot of cultures even have practices that are part of that culture that that really do a good job. Whether it's whether it's drumming or singing or dancing, uh, that can can be do a big job of that as well. And so I think when we're working with with diverse populations it's really helpful to look at where those families are coming from, look at what's important to them, and, and use that as a way to, to support that child's social-emotional development. Brilliant. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that um, is a dilemma is when I'm speaking to policymakers, I want to have data, and I want to say, here is a problem. So if we have no data, then we have no problem, then we have no action. Yeah. And if I'm just talking about social, so I, for families and understanding, I think we need to have a language, but for kicking the butts of policymakers, uh, politicians, I think we need to say this is about mental health in the littlest children. We have this data and we have these challenges and we need to push it forward, but we need to be protecting our parents so that they don't feel the burden and the stigma of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, unless someone else has something else they really want to add? No, I, I mean, we are pretty much up. I'd like to finish off with a panel by going around with everyone and just, uh, there are so many things that we could have uh, talked about here. And I'd just like to get an idea of what your final thoughts are, what you would like to leave the audience with, um, you know, before we wrap up for the day. Do you want to start? I think I said it before, my dream is to make a difference in the lives of every child and family in this province, in this 
I say in this province, in this country, in this world, like yeah. we can all make a difference. And I, I just want to leave you all with that one bit of difference is, is don't be silent anymore. We need to stop being silent. We need to stand up. We need to talk about the importance of the early years. We need to tell anyone who's listening. We need to join coalitions. We need to come together. We need to be that strong voice. So if any of you in this room are interested in joining this um, course and moving forward, there are seven um, coalitions in the Edmonton area that would love to have you be part of it and we can all make a difference in changing the world for the children. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kathy. I think this is a good timing for this panel because we're also going through federal election right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think everybody here uh, has an opportunity to make your voice heard. Um, vote for the person that you feel is going to represent your interests. Vote for the party you think is going to represent your interests. And, and that's one way we can make our voice heard. Thank you. Great. Yeah. I think, I think for me, the, what's hugely important for me is that the people realize that love builds brains. Yeah. And if we could, when we look and see children with challenging behaviors, if we can think what love is it they need, what's the understanding, every behavior has a reason, and is it that it's stress behavior, and is it for that parent that they're needing our support and our love because it's building their brains, and so can we be less judgmental, more reflective, and, and more civil? Mm. I think you stole from Natalie's playbook. <laughs> um. Well, I echo everything that has been uh, said already, and I guess um, it's the two pieces that uh, resonate with me is that children do well when they can, and that um, you know we, we need to break the, the thinking. I think there's a, a milieu in, in, um, in Alberta, and maybe in the, in the country, that um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And we know that's not true, mm -hmm. that we need one another to bring each other up and to support one another, and that um, together we're better. And so I think, um, you know, we, we know that children will do well when they can, and we need to give um, parents and, and our society the, the tools to help us um, raise one another up and raise children up to be the best that they can be. Well, Kristen. The final voice of experience. Um, I think that I would love for everybody, anybody that has any sort of experience with their children, that um, it may be related to child, early childhood mental health, mm -hmm. to talk about it. Um, it's hard for me to sit up here and feel like everybody's like, well, she didn't pay enough attention to her child, or um, you know, she experienced trauma or something. Um, that, wasn't really the case in our family um, and so I just kind of want to change the mentality around it I mean obviously that has a huge impact as we've learned from Dr. Clinton but it's just if you have a story if you have something um, and you're afraid of the judgment please don't be afraid to say it so that everybody feels normal in this boy that's that's the best way to end this because um, what we'd like to do, what, what, what this series is about, is about opening up the dialogue about the fact that we need to talk about these things to take away the stigma. Um, when people are talking about them, the fear goes away. So we really want to open up the conversation and 
what we have for our panel members to say thank you on behalf of CASA is uh, we have talking bowls. And, uh, and we hope that, uh, that you will continue the conversation. I know you will. Jean is going to be speaking this weekend uh, on Friday and Saturday. It's called Helping Children Succeed. And it's going to be held at the, and I didn't write it down, the Taylor Seminary. And you'll see these pamphlets uh, where you got the food downstairs if you want to find out more about it. It's on Saturday and Sunday. And also, if you'd like to review, Friday and Saturday, thank you. If you'd like to, um, uh, if you miss some things, or you'd like to see this again, or you have someone else you think could really benefit from today's talk, uh, it is being recorded. That's going to be up on the CASA website. Um, Jeff, in about a week, would you say? Okay, he gives me the thumbs up. Uh, also, we want to make sure that these lecture series are the best uh, in terms of giving you the most value and, and the topics. So uh, we've got an evaluation form and we'd really appreciate it if you could fill it out and be honest and tell, you what you, tell us what you think and how we can improve and that kind of thing. And uh, also, uh, if you have any questions, please, uh, we'd like to hear from you. Feedback at casaservices.org. Upcoming sessions are on our website uh, with dates, and, um, and you can let us know if you're coming. Our next session is going to be on November 17th. We're doing something for the first time. Our CASA Youth Council is going to be moderating, paneling, speaking uh, on youth lived experience. So we're really looking forward to that, and it's going to be again here under the dome. So. Uh, we want to say thank you so much for coming. Keep the conversation going. We'll see you next month, and we hope it helped. And you can talk to our panelists and our speaker um, after this is over. We just have to be out by 9 o'clock. So thank you. <laughs>